Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 23 and 24 of The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 23 Magic Dr. Craven had been waiting some time at the house when they returned to it. He had indeed begun to wonder if it might not be wise to send someone out to explore the garden paths. When Conan was brought back to his room, the poor man looked him over seriously. You should not have stayed so long, he said. You must not overexert yourself. I am not tired at all, said Colin. It has made me well. Tomorrow I am going out in the morning as well as in the afternoon. I'm not sure that I can allow it, answered Dr. Craven. I'm afraid it would not be wise. It would not be wise to try to stop me, said Colin, quite seriously. I am going. Even Mary had found out that one of Colin's chief peculiarities was that he did not know it in the least what a rude little brute he was with his way of ordering people about. He had lived on a sort of desert island all his life, and as he had been the king of it, he had made it his own manners and had had no one to compare himself with. Mary had indeed been rather like him herself and since she had been at Mithelswaite, had gradually discovered that her own manners had not been of the kind which is usual or popular. Having made this discovery, she naturally thought it of enough interest to communicate to Colin. So she sat and looked at him curiously for a minute, after Dr. Craven had gone. She wanted to make him ask her why she was doing it, and of course she did. What are you looking at me for? he said. I'm thinking that I am rather sorry for Dr. Craven. So am I, said Colin calmly. 
but not without an air of some satisfaction. He won't get Mithelsweet at all, now I'm not going to die. I'm sorry for him because of that, of course, said Mary. But I was thinking, just then, that it must have been very horrid to have been polite for ten years to a boy who was always rude. I would never have done it. Am I rude? Colin inquired, undisturbedly. If you had been his own boy, and he had been a slapping sort of man, said Mary, he would have slapped you. But he daren't, said Colin. No, he daren't, answered Mistress Mary, thinking the thing out quite without prejudice. Nobody ever dared to do anything you didn't like, because you were going to die, and things like that. You were such a poor thing. But, announced Colin stubbornly, I am not going to be a poor thing. I won't let people think I'm one. I stood on my feet this afternoon. It is always having your own way that has made you so queer, Mary went on, thinking aloud. Colin turned his head, frowning. Am I queer? he demanded. Yes, answered Mary. Very. But you needn't be cross, she added impartially. Because so am I queer. And so is Ben Weatherstaff. But I am not as queer as I was before I began to like people, and before I found the garden. I don't want to be queer, said Colin. I am not going to be. And he frowned again with determination. He was a very proud boy. He lay thinking for a while, and then Mary saw his beautiful smile begin and gradually change his whole face. I shall stop being queer, he said, if I go every day to the garden. There is magic in there, good magic, you know, Mary. I am sure there is. So am I said Mary. Even if it isn't real magic, Colin said, we can pretend it is. Something is there. Something. It's magic, said Mary, but not black. It's as white as snow. They always called it magic, and indeed it seemed like it in the months that followed, the wonderful months, the radiant months, the amazing ones. Oh, the things which happened in that garden. If you ever have never had a garden, you cannot understand. And if you have had a garden, you will know that it would take a whole book 
to describe all that came to pass there. At first it seemed that green things would never cease pushing their way through the earth, in the grass, in the beds, even in the crevices of the wall. Then the green things began to show buds, and the buds began to unfurl and show colour, every shade of blue, every shade of purple, every tint and hue of crimson. In its happy days, flowers had been tucked away into every inch and hole and corner. Ben Weatherstaff had seen it done, and had himself scraped out mortar from between the bricks of the wall, and made pockets of earth for lovely clinging things to grow on. Iris and white lilies rose out of the grass in sheaves, and the green alcoves filled themselves with amazing armies of the blue and the white flowers, lances of tall delphiniums and columbines or campanulas. She was main fond of them, she was, Ben Weatherstaff said. She liked them things as was allus pointin' up to the blue sky, she used to tell. Not as she was one of them as looked down on to earth, not her. She just loved it because she as to blue as sky allus looked so joyful. The seeds Dickon and Mary had planted grew as if fairies had tended them. Satiny poppies of all tints danced in the breeze by the score, gaily defying flowers which had lived in the garden for years and which, it might be confessed, seemed rather to wonder how such new people had got there. And the roses, the roses, rising out of the grass, tangled round the sundial, wreathing the trunks and hanging from their branches, climbing up the walls and spreading over them with long garlands falling in cascades. They came alive day by day, hour by hour. Fair fresh leaves and buds and buds, tiny at first, but swelling and working magic until they burst and uncurled into cups of scent delicately spilling themselves over their brims and filling the garden air. Colin saw it all, watching each change as it took place. Every morning he was brought out and every hour of each day when it didn't rain, he spent in the garden. Even grey days pleased him. He would lie on the grass, watching things grow, he said. If you watched long enough, he declared, you could see buds unsheath themselves. Also, 
you could make the acquaintance of strange, busy insect things running about on various unknown but evidently serious errands, sometimes carrying tiny scraps of straw or feather or food, or climbing blades of grass as if they were trees from whose tops one could look out to explore the country. A mole throwing up its mound at the end of its burrow and making its way out at last with the long-nailed paws, which looked like little elvish hands, had absorbed him one whole morning. Ants' ways, beetles' ways, bees' ways, frogs' ways, birds' ways, plants' ways, gave him a new world to explore. And when Dickin revealed them all, and added foxes' ways, otters' ways, ferrets' ways, squirrels' ways, and trout and water rats and badgers' ways, there was no end to the things to talk about and think over. And this was not the half of the magic. The fact that he had really once stood on his feet had set Colin thinking tremendously, and when Mary told him of the spell she had worked, he was excited and approved of it greatly. He talked of it constantly. Of course there must be lots of magic in the world, he said wisely one day but people don't know what it is like or how to make it. Perhaps the beginning is just to say nice things are going to happen until you make them happen. I am going to try and experiment. The next morning, when they went to the secret garden, he sent at once for Ben Weatherstaff. Ben came as quickly as he could and found the Raja standing on his feet under a tree and looking very grand but also very beautifully smiling. Good morning, Ben Weatherstaff, he said. I want you and Dickon and Miss Mary to stand in a row and listen to me because I am going to tell you something. Very important. Aye, aye, sir, answered Ben Weatherstaff, touching his forehead. One of the long concealed charms of Ben Weatherstaff was that in his boyhood he had once run away to sea and had made voyages, so he could reply like a sailor. I am going to try a scientific experiment, explained the Raja. When I grow up, I'm going to make great scientific discoveries, and I am going to begin now with this experiment. Aye, aye, sir, said Ben Weatherstaff promptly, though this was the first time he had heard of great scientific discoveries. 
It was the first time Mary had heard of them either, but at this stage she had begun to realise that, queer as he was, Colin had read about a great many singular things, and was somehow a very convincing sort of boy. When he held up his head and fixed his strange eyes on you, it seemed as if you believed him almost in spite of yourself, though he was only ten years old, going on eleven. At this moment, he was especially convincing, because he suddenly felt the fascination of actually making a sort of speech like a grown-up person. The great scientific discoveries I'm going to make, he went on, will be about magic. Magic is a great thing, and scarcely anyone knows anything about it, except a few people in old books, and Mary a little, because she was born in India, where there are fakirs, I believe Dickon knows some magic, but perhaps he doesn't know he knows it. He charms animals and people. I would never have let him come to see me if he had not been an animal charmer, which is a boy charmer too, because a boy is an animal. I am sure there is magic in everything only we have not sense enough to get hold of it and make it do things for us, like electricity and horses and steam. This sounded so imposing that Ben Weatherstaff became quite excited and really could not keep still. Aye, aye, sir, he said, and he began to stand up quite straight. When Mary found this garden, it looked quite dead, the orator proceeded. Then something began pushing things up out of the soil, and making things out of nothing. One day things weren't there, and another they were. I had never watched things before and it made me feel very curious. Scientific people are always curious, and I am going to be scientific. I keep saying to myself, What is it? What is it? It's something. It can't be nothing. I don't know its name, so I call it magic. I have never seen the sun rise but Mary and Dickon have, and from what they tell me, I am sure that it is magic too. Something pushes it up and draws it. Sometimes since I've been in the garden, I've looked up through the trees at the sky, and I have a strange feeling of being happy, as if something were pushing and drawing in my chest and making me breathe fast. Magic is always pushing and drawing and making things out of nothing.
everything is made out of magic. Leaves and trees, flowers and birds, badgers and foxes and squirrels and people. So it must be all around us. In this garden, in all the places. The magic in this garden has made me stand up. And I know that I am going to live to be a man. I am going to make the scientific experiment of trying to get some and put it in myself and make it push and draw me and make me strong. I don't know how to do it, but I think that if you keep thinking about it and calling it, perhaps it will come. Perhaps that is the first baby way to get it. When I was going to try to stand the first time, Mary kept saying to herself as fast as she could, You can do it, you can do it, and I did. I had to try myself at the same time, of course, but her magic helped me, and so did Dickens. Every morning and every evening, and as often in the daytime as I can, I remember I'm going to say, Magic is in me. Magic is making me well. I'm going to be as strong as Dickin, as strong as Dickin. And you must all do it too. That is my experiment. Will you help me? Ben Weatherstaff. Aye, aye, sir, said Ben Weatherstaff. Aye, aye. If you keep doing it every day as regularly as soldiers go through drill, we shall see what will happen and find out if the experiment succeeds. You learn things by saying them over and over and thinking about them until they stay in your mind forever, and I think it will be the same with magic. If you keep calling it to come to you and help you, it will get to be part of you, and it will stay and do things. I once heard an officer in India tell my mother that there were fakirs who said words over and over, thousands of times, said Mary. I've heard Jim Brettleworth's wife say the same thing over thousands of times. Calling Jim a drunken brute, said Ben Weatherstaff dryly. Something always comes of that, sure enough. He gave her a good hiding and went to blue lion, and got as drunk as a lord. Colin drew his brow together and thought a few minutes. Then he cheered up. Well, he said, you see something did come of it. She used the wrong magic until she made him beat her. If she'd used the right magic and had said something nice, Perhaps he wouldn't have got as drunk as a lord, and perhaps, 
Perhaps he might have bought her a new bonnet. Ben Weatherstaff chuckled, and there was a shrewd admiration in his little old eyes. There are a clever lad as well as a straight-legged one, Master Colin, he said. Next time I see Bess Fettleworth, I'll give her a bit of a hint to what magic'll do for her. She'd be rare and pleased if that scientific experiment worked, and so would Jem. Dickin had stood listening to the lecture, his round eyes shining with curious delight. Nut and shell were on his shoulders, and he held a long-eared white rabbit in his arm, and stroked and stroked it softly while it laid its ears along its back and enjoyed itself. Do you think the experiment will work? Colin asked him, wondering what he was thinking. He so often wondered what Dickon was thinking when he saw him looking at him or at one of his creatures with his happy, wide smile. He smiled now and his smile was wider than usual. Aye, he answered, that I do. It'll work same as tut seeds do when tut sunshine's on em. It'll work for sure. Shall us begin it now? Colin was delighted, and so was Mary. Fired by recollections of fakirs and devotees, in illustrations, Colin suggested that they should all sit cross-legged under the tree which made a canopy. It will be like sitting in a sort of temple, said Colin. I'm rather tired and I want to sit down. Eh, said Dickon, that mustn't be beginning to say that art tired. That might spoil the magic. Colin turned and looked at him into his innocent round eyes. That's true, he said slowly. I must only think of the magic. It all seemed most majestic and mysterious when they sat down in their circle. Ben Weatherstaff felt as if he had somehow been led into appearing at a prayer meeting. Ordinarily, he was very fixed in being what he called against prayer meetings, but this being the Raja's affair, he did not resist it, and was indeed inclined to be gratified at being called upon to assist. Mistress Mary felt solemnly enraptured, Dickon held his rabbit in his arm, and perhaps he made some charmer's signal no one heard, for when he sat down, cross-legged like the rest, the crow, the fox, the squirrels, and the lamb slowly drew near and made part of the circle, settling each into a place of rest, as if of their own desire. The creatures have come, 
said Colin gravely. They want to help us. Colin really looked quite beautiful, Mary thought. He held his head high, as if he felt like a sort of priest, and his strange eyes had one wonderful look in them. The light shone on him through the tree canopy. Now we will begin, he said. Shall we sway backward and forward, Mary, as if we were dervishes? I canna do no swaying backward and forward, said Ben Weatherstaff. I've got to rheumatics. The magic will take them away, said Colin, in a high priest tone. But we won't sway until it has done it. We will only chant. I canna do no chanting, said Ben Weatherstaff. A trifle testily. They turned me out of the church choir. It's the only time I tried it. No one smiled. They were all too much in earnest. Colin's face was not even crossed by a shadow. He was thinking only of the magic. Then I will chant, he said, and he began looking like a strange boy spirit. The sun is shining, the sun is shining. That is the magic. The flowers are growing, the roots are stirring. That is the magic. Being alive is the magic. Being strong is the magic. The magic is in me. The magic is in me. It is in me, it is in me, it's in every one of us. It's in Ben Weatherstaff's back. Magic, magic, come and help. He said it a great many times, not a thousand times, but quite a goodly number. Mary listened entranced. She felt as if it were at once queer and beautiful, and she wanted him to go on and on. Ben Weatherstaff began to feel soothed in a sort of dream which was quite agreeable. The humming of the bees in the blossoms mingled with the chanting voice and drowsily melted into a doze. Dickens sat cross-legged with his rabbit asleep on his arm and a hand resting on the lamb's back. Soot had pushed away a squirrel and huddled close to him on his shoulder. The grey film dropped over his eyes. At last Colin stopped. Now I am going to walk round the garden, he announced. Ben Weatherstaff's head had just dropped forward, and he lifted it with a jerk. You have been asleep, said Colin. Now other sort, mumbled Ben. That sermon was good now, but I'm bound to get out a fort at collection. He was not quite awake yet.
You're not in church, said Colin. Not me, said Ben, straightening himself. Who said I were? I heard every bit of it. You said the magic was in my back. The doctor calls it rheumatics. The Raja waved his hand. That was the wrong magic, he said. You will get better. You have my permission to go to your work, but come back tomorrow. I'd like to see thee walk round the garden, grunted Ben. It was not an unfriendly grunt, but it was a grunt. In fact, being a stubborn old party, and not having entire faith in magic, he made up his mind that if he were sent away, he would climb his ladder and look over the wall so that he might be ready to hobble back if there were any stumbling. The Raja did not object to his staying, and so the procession was formed. It really did look like a procession. Colin was at its head, with Dickon on one side and Mary on the other. Ben Weatherstaff walked behind, and the creatures trailed after them, the lamb and the fox cub keeping close to Dickon, the white rabbit hopping along or stopping to nibble, and soot following with the solemnity of a person who felt himself in charge. It was a procession which moved slowly, but with dignity. Every few yards it stopped to rest. Colin leaned on Dickens' arm, and privately, Ben Weatherstaff kept a sharp lookout. But now and then, Colin took his hand from its support, and walked a few steps alone. His head was held up all the time, and he looked very grand. The magic is in me, he kept saying. The magic is making me strong. I can feel it. I can feel it. It seemed very certain that something was upholding and uplifting him. He sat on the seat in the alcoves, and once or twice he sat down on the grass, and several times he paused in the path and leaned on Dickin. But he would not give up until he had gone all round the garden. When he returned to the canopy tree, his cheeks were flushed and he looked triumphant. I did it, the magic worked, he cried. That is my first scientific discovery. What will Dr. Craven say? broke out Mary. He won't say anything, Colin answered, because he will not be told. This is to be the biggest secret of all. No one is to know anything about it until I have grown so strong that I can walk and run like any other boy. 
I shall come here every day in my chair, and I shall be taken back in it. I won't have people whispering and asking questions, and I won't let my father hear about it until the experiment has quite succeeded. Then sometime when he comes back to Mithelswaite, I shall just walk into his study and say, Here I am. I am like any other boy. I am quite well, and I shall live to be a man. It has been done by scientific experiment. He will think he is in a dream, cried Mary. He won't believe his eyes. Colin flushed triumphantly. He had made himself believe that he was going to get well, which was really more than half the battle, if he had been aware of it. And the thought which stimulated him more than any other was this imagining what his father would look like when he saw that he had a son who was as straight and strong as any other father's son. One of his darkest miseries in the unhealthy morbid past days had been his hatred of being a sickly, weak-backed boy whose father was afraid to look at him. He'll be obliged to believe them, he said. One of the things I'm going to do after the magic works and before I begin to make scientific discoveries is to be an athlete. We shall have thee taken to boxing in a week or so, said Ben Weatherstaff. That'll end with winning the belt and being champion prize fighter of all of England. Colin fixed his eyes on him sternly. Weatherstaff, he said, that is disrespectful. You must not take liberties because you are in the secret. However much the magic works, I shall not be a prize fighter. I shall be a scientific discoverer. Ax pardon, ax pardon, sir answered Ben, touching his forehead in salute. I ought to have seen it wasn't a joking matter, but his eyes twinkled, and secretly he was immensely pleased. He really did not mind being snubbed, since the snubbing meant that the lad was gaining strength and spirit. Chapter 24 Let Them Laugh The secret garden was not the only one Dickon worked in. Round the cottage on the moor there was a piece of ground enclosed by a low wall of rough stones. Early in the morning and late in the fading twilight and on all the days Colin and Mary did not see him, Dickon worked there, planting or tending potatoes and cabbages, turnips and carrots and herbs for his mother. In the company of his creatures, 
He did wonders there, and was never tired of doing them, it seemed. While he dug or weeded, he whistled or sang bits of Yorkshire Moor songs, or talked to Soot or Captain or the brothers and sisters he had taught to help him. We'd never get on as comfortable as we do, Mrs. Sowerby said, if it wasn't for Dickens' garden. Anything'll grow for him. His taters and cabbages is twice the size of anyone else's, and they've got a flavour with them as nobody's has. When she found a moment to spare, she liked to go out and talk to him. After supper, there was still a long, clear twilight to work in, and that was her quiet time. She could sit upon the low, rough wall and look on and hear stories of the day. She loved this time. There were not only vegetables in the garden. Dickon had bought penny packages of flower seeds now and then and sown bright, sweet-scented things among the gooseberry bushes, and even cabbages, and he grew borders of mignonettes, and pinks, and pansies, and things whose seeds he could see year after year, or whose roots would bloom each spring, and spread in time into fine clumps. The low wall was one of the prettiest things in Yorkshire, because he had tucked moorland foxglove and ferns and rockcress and hedgerow flowers into every crevice, until only here and there glimpses of the stone were to be seen. All a chap's got to do is make em thrive, mother, he would say is to be friends with them for sure. They're just like the creatures. If they're thirsty, give them drink, and if they're hungry, give them a bit of food. They want to live same as we do. If they died, I should feed it as if I'd been a bad lad and somehow treated them heartlessly. It was in three twilight hours that Mrs. Sowerby heard of all that happened at Mithelsweet Manor. At first she was only told that Master Colin had taken a fancy to going out into the grounds with Miss Mary, and that it was doing him good. But it was not long before it was agreed between the two children that Dickens' mother might come into the secret. Somehow, it was not doubted that she was safe for sure. So one beautiful, still evening, Dickon told the story, with all the thrilling details of the buried key, and the robin, and the grey haze which had seemed like deadness, and the secret Mistress Mary had planned never to reveal. The coming of Dickon and how it had been told to him, the doubt of Master Colin and the final drama 
of his introduction to the hidden domain, combined with the incident of Ben Weatherstaff's angry face peering over the wall, and Master Collins' sudden indignant strength, made Mrs. Sowerby's nice-looking face quite change colour several times. My word, she said, it was a good thing that little lass came to manor. It's been to making of her, and that saving of him, standing on his feet, and us all thinking he was a poor, half-witted lad with not a straight bone in him. She asked a great many questions, and her blue eyes were full of deep thinking. What do they make of it, and to manner, him being so well and cheerful, and never complaining, she inquired. They don't know what to make of it, answered Dickon. Every day as comes round his face looks different. It's frilling out and doesn't look so sharp and t waxy colour is going, but he has to do his bit of complaining with a highly entertained grin. What for? I mercy's name, asked Mrs. Sowerby. Dickin chuckled. He does it to keep them from guessing what's happened. If the doctor knew he'd found out he could stand on his feet, he'd likely write and tell Master Craven. Master Collins saving to secret to tell himself. He's going to practice his magic on his legs every day till his father comes back, and then he's going to march into his room and show him he's as straight as other lads. But him and Miss Mary think it's best plan to do a bit of groaning and fretting now and then to throw folks off to scent. Mrs. Sowerby was laughing a low, comfortable laugh long before he had finished his last sentence. Eh, she said, that pair's enjoying themselves, I'll warrant. They'll get a good bit of action out of it, and there's nothing children likes as much as play-acting. Let's hear what they do, Dickon lad. Dickon stopped weeding and sat up on his heels to tell her. His eyes were twinkling with fun. Master Colin is carried down to his chair every time he goes out, he explained, and he flies out at John to footman for not carrying him careful enough. He makes himself as helpless looking as he can and never lifts his head until we're out of sight at a house, and he grunts and frets a good bit when he's been settled into his chair. Him and Miss Mary's both got to enjoying it, and when he groans and complains, she'll say, Poor Colin, does it hurt you so much? Are you so weak as that? Poor Colin. But the trouble is, that sometimes they can scarce keep from bursting out laughing. 
when we get safe into the garden, they laugh till they've no breath left to laugh with, and they have to stuff their face into Master Collins' cushions to keep the gardeners from hearing, if any of them's about. The more they laugh, the better for them, said Mrs. Sowerby, still laughing herself. Good healthy child laughing's better than pills any day of the year. That'll pair'll plump up for sure. They are plumping up, said Dickon. They're that hungry, they don't know how to get enough to eat without making talk. Master Collins says if he keeps sending for more food, they won't believe he's an invalid at all. Miss Mary says she'll let him eat her share, but he says that if he goes hungry, she'll get thin, and they won't both get fat at once. Mrs. Sowerby laughed so heartily at the revelation of this difficulty that she quite rocked backwards and forwards in her blue cloak, and Dickon laughed with her. I'll tell thee what, lad, Mrs. Sowerby said when she could speak. I've thought of a way to help em. When that goes to em into morning, that shall take a pail of good new milk, and I'll bake em a crusty cottage loaf, or some buns with currants in em, same as you children like. Nothing so good as fresh milk and bread. Then they could take off the edge of their hunger while they were in the garden, and to find food they get indoors and at polish off the corners. Eh, hey, mother, said Dickon admiringly, what a wonder that art, that always sees a way out of things. They was quite in a pother yesterday. They didn't see how they was to manage without ordering up more food. They felt that empty inside. They're two young uns growing fast, and else coming back to both of them. Children like that feels like young wolves and foods flesh and blood to them, said Mrs. Sowerby. Then she smiled Dickens' own curving smile. Eh, but they're enjoying themselves for sure, she said. She was quite right, the comfortable, wonderful mother creature, and she had never been more so than when she said their plain acting would be their joy. Colin and Mary found it one of their most thrilling sources of entertainment. The idea of protecting themselves from suspicion had been unconsciously suggested to them first by the puzzled nurse and then by Dr. Craven himself. Your appetite is improving very much, Master Colin, the nurse had said one day. You used to eat nothing and so many things disagreed with you. Nothing disagrees with me now, replied Colin. 
and then, seeing the nurse looking at him curiously, he suddenly remembered that perhaps he ought not to appear too well just yet. At least things don't so often disagree with me. It's the fresh air. Perhaps it is, said the nurse, still looking at him with a mystified expression. But I must talk to Dr. Craven about it. How she stared at you, said Mary, when she went away. As if she thought there must be something to find out. I won't have her finding out things, said Colin. No one must begin to find out yet. When Dr. Craven came that morning, he seemed puzzled also. He asked a number of questions to Colin's great annoyance. You stay out in the garden a great deal, he suggested. Where do you go? Colin put on his favourite air of dignified indifference to opinion. I will not let anyone know where I go, he answered. I go to a place I like. Everyone has orders to keep out of the way. I won't be watched and stared at. You know that. You seem to be out all day, but I do not think it has done you harm. I do not think so. The nurse says that you eat much more than you have ever done before. Perhaps, said Colin, prompted by a sudden inspiration. Perhaps it is an unnatural appetite. I do not think so, as your food seems to agree with you, said Dr. Craven. You are gaining flesh rapidly, and your colour is better. Perhaps, perhaps I am bloated and feverish, said Colin, assuming a discouraging air of gloom. People who are not going to live are often different. Dr. Craven shook his head. He was holding Colin's wrist and he pushed up his sleeve and felt his arm. You are not feverish, he said thoughtfully, and such flesh as you have gained is healthy. If you can keep this up, my boy, we need not talk of dying. Your father will be happy to hear of this remarkable improvement. I won't have him told, Colin broke forth fiercely. It will only disappoint him if I get worse again, and I may get worse this very night. I might have a raging fever. I feel as if I might be beginning to have one now. I won't have letters written to my father. I won't. I won't. You are making me angry, and you know that is bad for me. I feel hot already. I hate being written about and being talked over as much as I hate being stared at. Hush, my boy, Dr. Craven soothed him. Nothing shall be written without your permission. 
you are too sensitive about things. You must not undo the good which has been done. He said no more about writing to Mr. Craven, and when he saw the nurse, he privately warned her that such a possibility must not be mentioned to the patient. The boy is extraordinarily better, he said. His advance seems almost abnormal, but of course he is doing now of his own free will what we could not make him do before. Still, he excites himself very easily, and nothing must be said to irritate him. Mary and Colin were much alarmed and talked together anxiously. From this time dated their plan of play-acting. I may be obliged to have a tantrum, said Colin regretfully. I don't want to have one, and I'm not miserable enough now to work myself into a big one. Perhaps I couldn't have one at all. That lump doesn't come in my throat now, and I keep thinking of nice things instead of horrible ones. But if they talk about writing to my father, I shall have to do something. He made up his mind to eat less, but unfortunately it was not possible to carry out this brilliant idea when he wakened each morning with an amazing appetite, and the table near his sofa was set with a breakfast of homemade bread and fresh butter, snow-white eggs, raspberry jam and clotted cream. Mary always breakfasted with him, and when they found themselves at the table, particularly if there were delicate slices of sizzling ham, sending forth tempting odours from under a hot silver cover, they would look into each other's eyes in desperation. I think we shall have to eat it all this morning, Mary, Colin always ended by saying. We can send away a bit of the lunch and a great deal of the dinner, but they never found they could send away anything and the highly polished conditions of the empty plates returned to the pantry awakened much comment. I do wish, Colin would say also, I do wish the slices of ham were thicker, and one muffin each is not enough for anyone. It's enough for a person who is going to die, answered Mary when she first heard this, but it's not enough for a person who is going to live. I sometimes feel as if I could eat three when those nice, fresh heather and gore smells from the moor come pouring in at the open window. The morning that Dickon, after they had been enjoying themselves in the garden for about two hours, went behind a big rose-bush and brought forth two tin pails and revealed that one was full of rich new milk 
with cream on top of it, and that the other held cottage-made currant buns folded in a clean blue and white napkin, buns so carefully tucked in that they were still hot. There was a riot of surprised joyfulness. What a wonderful thing for Mrs. Sowerby to think of. What a kind, clever woman she must be. How good the buns were, and what delicious fresh milk. Magic is in her, just as it is in Dickin, said Colin. It makes her think of ways to do things, nice things. She is a magic person. Tell her we are grateful, Dickin, extremely grateful. He was given to using rather grown-up phrases at times. He enjoyed them. He liked this so much that he improved upon it. Tell her she has been most bounteous and our gratitude is extreme. And then, forgetting his grandeur, he fell to and stuffed himself with buns and drank milk out of the pail in copious draughts in the manner of a hungry little boy who had been taking unusual exercise and breathing in moorland air and whose breakfast was more than two hours behind him. This was the beginning of many agreeable incidents of the same kind. They actually awoke to the fact that as Mrs. Sowerby had fourteen people to provide for, she might not have enough to satisfy two extra appetites every day. So they asked her to let them send some of their shillings to buy things. Dickon made the stimulating discovery that in the woods in the park, outside the garden where Mary had first found him, piping to the wild creatures, there was a deep little hollow where you could build a sort of tiny oven with stones and roast potatoes and eggs in it. Roasted eggs were a previously unknown luxury and very hot potatoes with salt and fresh butter in them were fit for a woodland king. Besides being deliciously satisfying, you could buy both potatoes and eggs, as many as you liked, without feeling as if you were taking food out of the mouths of fourteen people. Every beautiful morning, the magic was worked by the mystic circle under the plum tree, which provided a canopy of thickening green leaves after its brief blossom time was ended. After the ceremony, Colin always took his walking exercise, and throughout the day he exercised his newly found power at intervals. Each day he grew stronger and could walk more steadily and cover more ground. And each day his belief in the magic grew stronger, as well it might. 
he tried one experiment after another, as he felt himself gaining strength, and it was Dickin who showed him the best things of all. Yesterday, he said one morning after an absence, I went to Thwaite for mother, and near the blue cow inn, I seed Bob Hapworth. He's the strongest chap on Tipmore. He's the champion wrestler, and he can jump higher than any other chap, and throw the hammer farther. He's gone all the way to Scotland for the sport some years. He knowed me ever since I was a little un, and he's a friendly sort, and I asked him some questions. The gentry calls him an athlete, and I thought of thee, Master Colin, and I says, How did that make that muscle stick out that way? Did that do anything extra to make thyself so strong? And he says, Well, yes, lad, I did. A strong man in a show that come to Thwaite once showed him how to exercise his arms and legs and every muscle in his body. And I says, Could a delicate chap make himself stronger with them, Bob? And he laughed and says, Art that the delicate chap? And I says, No, but I knows a young gentleman that's getting well of a long illness, and I wish to know some of them tricks to help him about. I didn't say no names, and he didn't ask none. He's friendly, same as I said, he stood up and showed me good-natured like, and I imitated what he did till I knowed it by heart. Colin had been listening excitedly. You can show me, he cried, will you? Aye, to be sure, Dickon answered, getting up. But he says that won't do em gentle at first, and be careful not to tire thyself. Rest in between times, and take deep breaths, and don't overdo. I'll be careful, said Colin. Show me, show me, Dickon. You are the most magic boy in the world. Dickon stood up on the grass, and slowly went through a carefully practical but simple series of muscle exercises. Colin watched them with widening eyes. He could do a few while he was sitting down. Presently, he did a few gently while he stood upon his already steadied feet. Mary began to do them also. Soot, who was watching the performance, became much disturbed and left his branch and hopped about restlessly because he could not do them. From that time, the exercises were part of the day's duties as much as the magic was. It became possible for both Colin and Mary to do more of them each time they tried, and such appetites were the results that but for the basket Dickon put down behind the bush each morning when he arrived, they would have been lost. 
but the little oven in the hollow and Mrs. Sowerby's bounties were so satisfying that Mrs. Medlock and the nurse and Dr. Craven became mystified again. You can trifle with your breakfast and seem to disdain your dinner if you are full to the brim with roasted eggs and potatoes and richly frothed new milk and oat cakes and buns and heather honey and clotted cream. They are eating next to nothing, said the nurse. They'll die of starvation if they can't be persuaded to take some nourishment. And yet, see how they look. Look, exclaimed Mrs. Medlock indignantly. Eh, I'm mothering to death with them. They're a pair of young Satans, first in their jackets one day, and the next turning up their noses at the best meals cooked, tempt with them. Not a mouthful of that lovely young fowl and bread sauce did they set a fork into yesterday, and the poor woman fair invented a pudding for em, and back it sent. She almost cried. She's afraid she'll be blamed if they starve themselves into their graves. Dr. Craven came and looked at Colin long and carefully. He wore an extremely worried expression when the nurse talked with him and showed him the almost untouched tray of breakfast she had saved for him to look at. But it was even more worried when he sat down by Colin's sofa and examined him. He had been called to London on business and had not seen the boy for nearly two weeks. When young things begin to gain health, they gain it rapidly. The waxen tinge had left Colin's skin and a warm rose showed through it. His beautiful eyes were clear and the hollows under them, and in his cheeks and temples they had filled. His once dark, heavy locks had begun to look as if they sprang healthily from his forehead, and were soft and warm with life. His lips were fuller and of a normal colour, in fact, as an imitation of a boy who was a confirmed invalid. He was a disgraceful sight. Dr. Craven held his chin in his hand and thought it over. I am sorry to hear that you do not eat anything, he said. That will not do. You will lose all you have gained, and you have gained amazingly. You ate so well a short time ago. I told you it was an unnatural appetite, answered Colin. Mary was sitting on her stool nearby, and she suddenly made a very queer sound, which she tried to violently repress, that she ended by almost choking. What is the matter? said Dr. Craven, turning to look at her. Mary became quite severe in her manner. It was something between a sneeze and a cough, 
she replied with reproachful dignity, and it got into my throat. But, she said afterward to Colin, I couldn't stop myself. I just burst out because of all at once I couldn't help remembering that the last big potato you ate and the way your mouth stretched when you bit through that thick, lovely crust with jam and clotted cream on it. Is there any way in which those children can get food secretly? Dr. Craven inquired of Mrs. Medlock. There's no way unless they dig it out of the earth or pick it off the trees. Mrs. Medlock answered. They stay out in the grounds all day and see no one but each other and if they want anything different to eat from what's sent up to them, they need only ask for it. Well, said Dr. Craven, so long as going without food agrees with them, we need not disturb ourselves. The boy is a new creature. So is the girl, said Mrs. Medlock. She's begun to be downright pretty since she's filled out and lost her ugly, little sour face. Her hair's grown thick and healthy-looking, and she's got a bright colour. The glummest, ill-natured little thing she used to be, and now her and Master Colin laugh together like a pair of crazy young ones. Perhaps they're growing fat on that. Perhaps they are, said Dr. Craven. Let them laugh.